Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life, and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, who is a computer's favorite singer? Adele. What is the best way to learn about computers? Bit by bit. My guest today is Don Borg-Costanzi, IT guru at Pew Charitable Trusts. Her job? To help track international fisheries. This wasn't what she thought she would do initially, however. Originally, Dawn thought she would go into software design. We had a fun conversation today learning Dawn's story, more behind the scenes of IEU fishing and international fishery management, and just how it impacts us all. Please enjoy. Dawn, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. Thanks, Cara. So am I. Thanks so much for reaching out and inviting me here. Yeah. So you work with Pew Charitable Trust studying or researching or really uh, tracking IUU, which is illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. But starting out, you had no inclination, no idea that this was even a thing that you wanted to do this. So when growing up or going into college, what did you want to focus on? Yeah, so I love talking about this. I'm glad we started with this question. Um, so I, I went into college studying IT, so information technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really just was planning to be a software developer. So I have no conservation, no legal education or background. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was um, a series of coincidences, really, that brought me to work in this field of fisheries policy, which I'm very grateful for. So I had studied um, IT, as I said, um, and in particular, computer science and artificial intelligence. And my dissertation was in computational linguistics, so nothing to do with this. Um, but when I, when I graduated, I got a job with a multi-software development company. And one of our clients happened to be the government's Department of Fisheries and Aquaculture. Um, and then I got assigned to a project um, tracking fishing vessels and then later um, to the development of an electronic register of fishing vessels. And then that's when the coincidence happened that um, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization at that time uh, had a similar project going on and they wanted to develop um, a similar register for the Mediterranean. And they got in touch with the Maltese authorities to see if there was anyone from our team in Malta to consult with them for a year um, and share our local experiences. And I I thought that was really interesting. So I applied and I I was really lucky to be selected. And so 
I started working for the FAO for about six years. Um, I started with software development. And then slowly, slowly, I shifted to um, policy making and capacity development. And then I realized that like, these are the things that really make me tick. So, yeah. yeah, so that's how I got into it. Yeah. So can you like go way back? So when you're starting off, you were working for the Maltese government, correct? Well, it was a private company, but the okay. Maltese government was, was one of our clients. Yeah. I gotcha. Okay. And... How did you get that opportunity? How did that door open for you? Or was it like a bulletin board or you were like, mm, that sounds interesting, like in a job board? Oh, well, actually, um, in our in our penultimate year at university, um, we were given the opportunity to apply for internships. Mm. And um, I had applied for a, a few different ones. And then I was selected by this company. So I, I started working just a few hours a week um, throughout my last year of university and in the summer. And then when I graduated, I joined full time. Okay. And what were some of your roles and responsibilities as you kind of grew into that role? Um, so mostly developing software, um, okay. both front end and back end, which means both the side that the, the user sees, but also everything going on behind the scenes. Um, and mostly related to tracking uh, mm -hmm. of, of vessels, but also of, for example, postmen and postwomen um, and delivery uh, uh, delivery trucks and, and stuff like that. Um, oh. Yes, but I think my favorite part of that role was when um, I got to sit with the client. So I was sent to the fisheries and aquaculture department to basically figure out what they do on a day-to-day -day basis, what their requirements from the software would be, um, and just really understand how um, that authority was working. And I found that extremely interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff. Okay, so what it, what were some of the things that kind of surprised you with the tracking or what were some of the hurdles that you initially encountered with like starting this like fisheries tracking in Malta? Um. We had a good team, so for some of them, this wasn't new, and so I was okay. really well guided. But I think I was just surprised that this whole world existed out there. So, yeah. um, when I was assigned to the project, I was just like tracking fishing vessels, okay. Um, <laughs> and then we started talking about things like catch documentation, which which are systems for fishers to be able to report where mm. they're operating and what fish they're catching and whatever. I was like, oh, I didn't know this existed either. And then uh, many other things like related to the sales of the seafood products and the statistics. And it just started widening up slowly, slowly. And I was just so surprised that, that there was such a huge um, industry related to all of this. Yeah. So going to this, you didn't even really realize that fisheries had to track what they were catching what they that they had to report or is that something you kind of like vaguely knew in the back of your mind and you just didn't realize how in-depth it was i think i just assumed it was something that happens like you would track any other industry but i had never put much thought into it before mm -hmm. before before i was assigned to this this client um and you know i think there are many things that go on that you don't really realize until you get pulled into it so I, I, I wasn't aware of the fisheries management sphere, let alone illegal fishing and how that's a problem. Mm -hmm. It was just all so new. Yeah. Yeah. So as you got into this, what really struck you of like why this is so important? And like, I'd imagine this is the reason what really kept you pulled in, right? Yeah. So um, 
obviously, I started to realize that, um, you know, fish is so important for so many people around the world Mm -hmm. and that um, it needs to be really well managed for it to be Mm -hmm. sustainable. And so there are many different things that need to be done that I had never really given much thought to. and I think um, it surprised me as well to learn how many people depend on the ocean and, and seafood for their for their livelihoods and for food security, and how many communities the fisheries world touches worldwide. Um, so yeah, I think it was just the the broadness and the depth of it all that's what was quite surprising to me. Okay, yeah, that is, and it's really important. Because, yeah, like you said, like so many people rely on it and to be able to track it, you know, we've had fisheries that have collapsed around the world. And so to just get a better idea of how to manage it so that people can continue to rely on in the future and then kind of evolving into your current role of tracking more like the illegal side, not the fishing with the the fishers that are actually reporting and tracking their catches. Um, This is important because I, what did I read? It was like one in five fish that are presented in the market are IUU fish. Is that what? Yes. Um, One in five. Yes. Those are kind of dated statistics now, but we assume they're probably still correct. If not more than that. And it's even more in some parts of the world where, you know, there is limited capacity for monitoring and, and so on. So yeah, it could be even worse than that, hopefully not. But hmm. yeah, it's a yeah. lot. So your role, you know, graduating from working with the government of the University of Malta and then going toward to FAO, what what did what shifted? It seems like it you at least your scale broadened, right? You were no longer working just in specific country, but multiple countries. Yes, exactly. So um, when I started working with the FAO, I was on more global projects. So mm-hmm. they were still related to the development of information systems in the beginning. So the first one um, was this uh, Mediterranean project on vessels. And then the second one was a global record of fishing vessels. So trying to come up with a system that allows countries to report what vessels um, they have registered and all information related to, for example, authorizations that they've been given and licenses to fish and so on. And then I also worked on a questionnaire for countries to be able to report um, their progress and how well they're doing in implementing what is known as the Code of Conduct for Responsible Fisheries. Mm. So um, that also really helped me broaden my scope because that code is in itself covering very many different topics. And so even just building the system for the countries to report on that um, allowed me to have some insight into all the different aspects that are considered. Yeah. So what did that look like, this code of conduct? What were some of the things, what were some of the, mm, I guess, codes, right? Some of the regulations or stipulations that people were agreeing to when they were agreeing, when they were starting to use this system? Yeah, so the, the Code of Conduct um, is over 25 years old. It's, it's, an, it's an FAO, um, I think we could call it guidelines because they're not really rules. Um, but they, it talks about many things such as um, how um, states should monitor, control and, and issue surveillance on their vessels, um, things related to aquaculture, um, things related to fish trade, 
um, different conservation measures like related to the protection of seabirds as well. Um, and obviously, there is um, a related document on IUU fishing, which is then eventually what I got into more. But um, yeah, it is very broad. Yeah, it is. So how did you get into the, how did you shift from, you know, reported tracking to IUU fishing? Yes, so um, the Global Record of Fishing Vessels, which is one of the projects I was on, its Mm -hmm. intention is actually to help fight IUU fishing. So um, by knowing which vessels are um, registered and authorized to operate, uh, then you can also carry out risk assessment on vessels and you can try to figure out which ones are the ones operating outside the law. So that was my first in uh, to the illegal fishing side. And then um, from there, that's when I applied for the role at Pew and I started working on um, the adoption and the implementation of port state measures. These are the controls that um, port authorities should put in place to make sure that um, foreign vessels that are trying to enter their ports are not carrying seafood that's um, a product of IEU fishing. And the global record, which I had been working on previously, is one of the tools that these authorities can use to um, obtain more information about those vessels that are trying to enter the port. So um, that's the link. So from the records of vessels um, to the implementation of port state measures. Um, and I did that for the first five years or so that, I, that I've been at Pew. So yeah, that was my first row there. Very cool. So how do you figure out which vessels are operating outside the law? Well, it's it's not easy, of course. Yeah, um, it you sounds need... like you're a detective. <laughs> oh, I mean, we we don't. Uh, so at Pew, that's that's not what we do. As in, we're not actually trying to figure out which the vessels are. We're trying to equip um, the country reps with the tools and the information that they need to be able to do that. Okay. So um, it's a lot about. Um, making sure that, for example, there's information exchange that is happening between the authorities that hold the information and need the information, um, and also helping establish processes and procedures to, as I said before, um, carry out risk assessment um, and to basically try to put together a picture of what those vessels are doing. So there are tracking systems, um, which allow the authorities to have some information about where the vessels were operating, then they can cross-check with whether they have licenses to do that. Um, they can look at uh, what's on board if they if they do inspect a vessel. Um, and then when you put all the information together, you should be able to validate whether that vessel has been doing what it was supposed to or not. And then try to find evidence, if not, and take action. But um, as I said, that's not something we do. Um, we're just trying to enable the, the state authorities to do that themselves. Okay, so the information you provide is this uh, global record, this like yeah, record uh, uh, of, of vessels, and then there's tracking information along with these vessels. Is this using the AIS systems? Yes, yeah, so we don't actually provide the systems. The global record is an FAO system. Um, okay. Gotcha. And and the countries are the ones providing the information themselves. It's um, the system that is made available by the FAO. Um, and 
we yeah we do a lot of research related to AIS analysis. So there are other companies and organizations that make um, that information available. Mm. And then we do work with other organizations and researchers and so on to analyze that information and try to make sense of it and try to give indications of, for example, where efforts should be focused and um, what what data is still missing that needs to be collected in order to figure out what's going on um, and really also giving recommendations on how that information can be used by the authorities and others so that they can um, enforce their waters as well. Hmm. So which countries are you predominantly working with? Um, well, different parts of our project work with different countries. Um, at the moment, I'm leading um, a new work stream on regional coordination, and that is looking to um, help build a multi-state coalition at, at regional level in um, Central or South America. So we'd like to help those states work together to meet their responsibilities um, and to demonstrate how to achieve fisheries compliance and ocean governance more broadly. Um, and we're trying to bring together the policy and the enforcement aspects that we believe are really important to end illegal fishing. So we're still at early stages. We haven't really selected the exact countries yet. We're carrying out some research um, and then we're going to have a feasibility study to figure out where we should be working and where we can make a more worthwhile contribution. And then we'll be designing our strategy with a handful of countries in that region. So um, the work stream that I manage will be focusing on that uh, Latin American part of the world. Awesome. I read that there was, you had an example of like, of benefits of sharing in the data, right, of this whole system, this global information exchange system. And you cited a vessel, it was named STS-50, um, and was poaching toothfish in the Southern Ocean. Would you share that story and kind of how, like, what y'all are doing helped bring this vessel to light? Um, Yes, without getting into too many of the details of it, um, uh, our team was reporting for a long while a group called Fisheye Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was another regional a regional initiative which had has had a lot of success over the years um, and it brings together state authorities in East Africa so all across um, all down the coastline from um, Somalia down to uh, Tanzania I think it is um, and um, those states, they share information and intelligence that they have on fishing vessels and they work together to try to, to combat illegal fishing, as is the case of this STS-50. So STS-50 was, as you said, illegally poaching toothfish. Then it tried to enter um, one of the ports and then the countries were working together to um, alert each other to where the vessel might go next and what information they had on that vessel so that they could um, effectively um, sort of stop it proceeding to unload its fish and also um, take the necessary action to uh, against the operators, take the, the necessary action against those that were managing the vessel and the operators so that it couldn't continue to fish illegally. Mm. I love it. 
<laughs> that's that's the like fun detective part. work on the high seas <laughs> with like international borders that's fun <laughs> yes unfortunately we we're not doing that directly ourselves but it is right. really encouraging to see these these sort of success stories definitely right and that's what your work is facilitating like that's that's the beauty of it right exactly yes that's what yeah. we try to do yeah yeah so that it kind of struck me as we were talking um toothfish a lot of it a lot of times Antarctic toothfish on menus in restaurants is resold as Chilean sea bass because nobody wants to eat something called a toothfish. Um, <laughs> so for listeners, that's something to keep in mind. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> kind of on that note, how has working in this realm shifted your personal habits? Oh, yeah, that is a good question. So... Um, I know that there is quite a push um, recently to, for example, not eat uh, seafood to, to protect our, um, our oceans. Um, I, I think um, it's more about being aware of where your seafood is coming from and asking mm-hmm. the questions um, and trying to figure out um, through the supply chain whether the policies and the regulations have been Um, followed which is really difficult to be quite honest because you know when you pick up some seafood in the store you don't have all the information to make um, those decisions with with accuracy but I think um, uh, yes working in this realm has definitely made me more aware of um, certain uh, species that for example are more at risk uh, and therefore, I avoid eating those, of course. Um, and I try to diversify a little bit so that, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're not always all eating the same seafood and depleting those stocks too much. But mm-hmm. also just trying to ask the questions more. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I know, you know, it can be a lot trying to, you know, you, you go to a store or a restaurant and you have certain seafood selections and if you don't know anything about it, it's like, okay, well, what's their life cycle? Is it fast reproducing or not? We should eat the faster reproducing ones over the like the ones that take 10 to 15 years. Okay. And then, oh, how is this fisheries managed? Where was it caught? How is it caught? And as a consumer, these are a lot of questions. So, I mean, people kind of do one or two things. They either don't ask the questions, just, just like say, whatever, I'll just eat it. Um, or they just don't eat seafood at all. And I think your point of asking the questions is super impactful because it shows that people do care and we want to know. And I think it's driving, it'll drive the change from a consumer level. Yes, I agree. Um, I think um, when the supply chain actors know that there is that interest and that people are asking those questions, then they do make an effort to sort of clean up their act or maybe even just figure out whether what they're doing is enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think we've seen it, it's quite effective. So, for example, in the UK, where I'm based, mm-hmm. um, there is quite a big consumer push for better um, human, human rights protections um, in fisheries, but not only. And we have seen that a lot of the, um, the seafood buyers and other supply chain actors are paying more attention to that. Um, and there's more of a, an awareness that um, fishing is one of the most dangerous occupations, actually, and many people don't know that. Um, And that um, those who operate outside the law are often um, not willing to invest in protecting the people that work for them enough either. 
And mm-hmm. so, um, yes, there is more attention on that and you can see improvements being made. Of course, it takes a while, but knowing that there is that consumer interest, um, we, can, we can see that there are positive shifts being made. So, yes, I would definitely um, support asking the questions and trying to figure out, you know, where your seafood comes from. There are apps that can help as well, where you can look up certain species and, you know, it's simplified for the consumer as well, where there are color coding of how um, risky or not that is. And, And we are also working with the industry to create those sort of tools for themselves. So not for consumers only, but also for those buying the seafood that then ends up on our shelves, trying to create some tools for them to ask the questions from further down the supply chain so they can also figure out um, whether they need to make some changes to their supply chains. Oh, I like that. Yeah, because most of the time it's not fishermen selling directly to the consumer, right? It's not like fishermen get off the boat and go to the fish market and then people come and buy it. I mean, it happens in some places, but most of, at least, you know, in the U.S. and probably in the U.K. as well, most of the time it's fishermen sell to somebody else, whether it's a grocer or a small seafood market, and then the consumer goes and that's where they purchase it. So I like that idea of supplying the information to that middleman, that market or the grocer, and having them make those decisions a little bit more consciously and giving them all the tools to equip them to do that. Yes, exactly. I mean, when you buy seafood or anything else really, um, you know, in the store, you kind of assume that what you're purchasing has come through legal channels mm-hmm. um, and problems like IUU fishing, they're actually deceiving the consumers, right? Because you believe that you're buying something that's well sourced, but at the end of the day, it's not. And mm-hmm. so, as you say, we need to um, empower the middleman to be able to check a little bit more um, how that fish ended up, you know, in in their hands um, and how to better make decisions based on the risk um, related to IU fishing and and other things as well. Yeah. You grew up in Malta, correct? Yes, I did. I grew up in Malta. Yes, I lived there. And then you went to university there and then you moved to Rome for a little bit while you're working at FAU and now you're in FAO, excuse me, and now you're in London. Yeah, have you right. seen like a shift? Um, I imagine because these are huge cities. So, have you? Is there a huge shift in like the fish markets or people's perspective as you've kind of moved around? Yes, definitely. I mean, I can I can see a huge difference between Malta and London, for example, with maybe Rome being somewhere in the middle. So, in Malta, um, everything is much smaller. We have a small population, and so things are more direct people are more likely to, um, you know, get seafood, for example, directly from the fishers or from Mm -hmm. a fish market um, without necessarily going through all the processing and then buying it in the store or what have you, although that Mm -hmm. is becoming more common, of course. Um, But also, I think there is less of an awareness, maybe because there hasn't needed to be in the past because, um, you know, until recently supply was relatively stable I guess and so the question didn't really pose itself whereas I see more awareness here in London of conservation in general which includes seafood but it's much broader than that Um, and I think even uh, you know related to things like climate change there's more awareness here it's a more international community and um 
these problems present themselves on a much larger scale. And I think there's just, as I said before, a, a much higher level of awareness. So yes, I definitely see differences there. Um, and, and I hope that that level of awareness will grow all over because obviously we need to take action wherever we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of going back, you know, when you're going into university and you're like, I'm going to major in information technology, what kind of job did you envision yourself having? Um, so I, I'm not someone who thinks too far ahead. So I've never mm. had sort of the big dream of, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. Okay. I kind of work on micro ambitions. <laughs> yeah. So little things at a time. And I, I always have tried to take opportunities up as they present themselves, even mm. if it's not always clear where they may lead me. Um, and I think that has served me well so far because, um, you know, it shows that um, there isn't always a straight path. I've, I've always been interested in trying to do something that makes a difference, even though I wasn't really sure how I would get there. And then even studying information technology, um, taking up a series of opportunities, I managed to get to this um you know, to this field, which I which I feel has an important impact and which, I, I mean, I can't really think of doing anything else now, but yeah. I wouldn't say that I had a very clear idea of what I want to do. I just imagined myself, you know, developing software for different clients and um, I always wanted to work internationally. So I was very glad when I got the opportunity to work in Italy and then it just went from there. I love it. So... I read that you did have a, a small stint. You try, you left the fisheries world or maybe worked in tandem for the university for a little bit and then you, you came back. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I The first time I moved to London, I was working for a university here. Okay. Um, and really that was because I wanted to move to London for personal reasons and mm. Uh, it, it was a it was a good opportunity, you know. It fit in well with my IT background. Um, it was actually a really nice working place, but and the people were great too. But but then after a while, I, I felt like oh, this is not really making good use of the experience I've had in the fisheries field, and I really enjoyed that. And so it just drew me back in, and I couldn't say no. I just went back back to the FAO <laughs> for a little while. <laughs> uh can't you can't leave now that's awesome I love that yeah I just um I I thought like okay you know the fishery thing was fun but at the end of the day my background is IT I, I don't need to be doing that forever I you know IT is one of those um those industries which is very fortunate to be applied to everything you know every sector needs yeah. IT so yeah. that's one of the things that had um, sort of drawn me to it when I was deciding what to study at university and so on but um, yeah you know when I when I left the the fisheries world and and it just was sort of doing IT more for the sake of the, the software itself rather than what the software was being used for and um, then I realized like, okay, no, I think I need to go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. Pulled you right back in. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it worked out well. I'm definitely not complaining. 
you know, you got this job in fisheries and stuff and you left, made the leap from IT. Do you like to play in the ocean? I mean, growing up on an island in the Mediterranean, I would assume that you, grew, you spent some time in the ocean, right? Definitely. So, yes, I have, I, I am an island girl at the end of the day. Um, <laughs> Malta is very small, so you're never more than maybe half an hour or 45 minutes from the Mediterranean Sea. Okay. Um, so, yes. Um, I have very fond memories of spending my weekends with my parents by the sea and with my grandma um, swimming when we were on summer holidays and so on. So um, the sea has always given me sort of a sense of well-being um, all my life. And I think once I started traveling more, especially to different continents, and then you see different um, oceans. Um, or well, it's just one ocean, but you're on different sides of the ocean. Um, and then I started snorkeling and then later diving. I think that got me to appreciate the ocean even more. So, yeah, definitely. I am very attracted to the ocean. I could spend my days on the beach, <laughs> which is uh, difficult to talk about on a gray, rainy day in London. <laughs> but yes. Oh, yeah. 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 Going from an island to a London would be challenging. I, I could only imagine. <laughs> yeah, it took some getting used to. Makes me appreciate my time by the ocean more, though, when I get there. Absolutely. Do you think that strong foundation and love for the ocean helps drive your work? Yes, I would definitely say so. I mean, I've, I've as I as I said earlier, I've always wanted to find some some way to make a difference. Um, I've mm. always been interested in. Um, the environment and and helping people more than the environment even um but the fact that um this is related to the ocean and i i just really love being by the sea and watching marine life and so on it definitely has uh, an extra attraction there yeah yeah and the argument could be made that while you're helping people and the environment, you're also helping the environment and vice versa. Of right? course, of course, it's all interdependent. So um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, we need, we need to focus on getting to a balance where we are conserving the environment and also people are able to sort of use it sustainably and, and maintain their livelihoods and their food security and so on. So it's a tricky balance, but yes, definitely they are interdependent and hopefully we can find a way to protect and um, conserve both the people and the planet. Yeah. So in a perfect world, what would vessel tracking or, I mean, I guess fisheries tracking look like? Could you kind of walk through that process? Um, yeah, that is a big question, but um, yeah. maybe I'll just, <laughs> maybe I'll just break it down to some um, main aspects. Um so first of all, we'd like to have the right rules in place, right? And the right policies so that um, we know that if everyone operates as they should, then, then the management is sustainable. Mm -hmm. um, and so we need clear, clear rules and regulations. We need countries to agree on those together because obviously these are shared resources. And so it has to be done um, in a group format, um, we, we, it, was, it wouldn't be effective if uh, individual states or groups are taking decisions on their own. So there is this um, very important aspect, I think, of um, international cooperation, and um, that is necessary to set the framework, let's say, 
then once you have that those rules and regulations in place, um, then you need to have, as we as we've been talking about, then you need to have the information about what's actually happening. So you need the systems to be able to obtain the information, exchange the information, analyze the information, and so on. Um, and then you also need to be able to take action when things are not going as they should, right? So you need um, you need the different authorities to have the the power and the um, capabilities, first of all, to be able to use that information and decide what to do next um, and prosecute if they need to, you know, or, or maybe it doesn't need to get to that point, but understand who is um, operating outside the law and then um, take action against them so that that becomes more risky business. So as we, as we know, fishing operators, like anyone else, really, they are looking to to make money, you know, they work according mm-hmm. to economic benefits. So if it becomes mm-hmm. riskier to operate outside the law, mm-hmm. then they're not going to do it. So it, we just need to tip that balance where it becomes more likely that they are um, sort of detected if they mm-hmm. operate illegally than not. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. hopefully the, the probability of them deciding to do that um, it reduces significantly. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So in my head, right, in a perfect world, there's no IEU fishing, right? There, everybody's like operating inside the bounds and they're tracking their catches in whatever species, size, whatever other data that fisheries managers need in order to make educated decisions. And because these vessels are out so frequently and catching fish, it really help, we could help push the science better, right? You make better educated fisheries managed decisions um, based on what these fish, what these vessels are catching. So in a perfect world, it kind of just all like works together and nobody's navigating outside these bounds. Again, I recognize like IE fishing's a huge problem right now, but I like that goal. I like that goal of like the fishers are helping educate the science, educating the public and also providing a service because they do, you know, people really like to eat fish and I get it. Of course, yes. No, it is It is a lot like that. I mean, that's what we need to aspire to. At the moment, yeah. we know that um, IOU fishing is undermining um, efforts, whether they're national or regional or international, anything, to manage the fisheries sustainable and what, sustainably. And one of yeah. the reasons is that the science is skewed because we don't have accurate data. So, um, as you say, in a perfect world, we would have everyone <laughs> operating inside the rules and providing the information so that we can make, take the right decisions. I mean, some um, economists and scientists believe that even if everything is perfect, there will always be people who operate outside the rules just because that's human yeah. behavior. But it's all about yeah. shifting, shifting behavior, right? And trying to get right. people to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So if we, I mean, I don't know what that percentage looks like, um, one in five fish caught, but if we can, you know, make that number down to like a very tiny, small percentage, um, that would be ideal. Right. And then you can make better management decisions because like I mentioned earlier, we have had fisheries collapse. So people really do need to, there needs to be some sort of data management and analysis with it because there's just so many people that want to eat the fishes. (laughs) Of course. And if you think of, um, you know, other parts of the world, like say Africa, but not only, 
and mm-hmm. there are large communities that are depending on seafood as their main source of protein so right. it's not even about liking to eat fish it's just necessary for nutrition right. nutritional purposes so yeah it's super important to be able to manage that yeah, yeah. thank you for bringing that up there's lots of people around the world that sustenance fish right they need to have those exactly. fish in the ocean that's 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 their livelihood that's their meals that they bring home every night to their family they don't have another option so it's important to keep balance the fisheries for everyone <laughs> exactly definitely yeah so i got a question for you my answer mm-hmm. changes daily so you know you can say say the answer now and it could change tomorrow but what is your favorite sea creature and why Oh, okay. Um, I am also undecided on this one. So <laughs> I really love sea turtles. Um, I had a tortoise as a pet when I was growing up. <laughs> so <laughs> they are different, but they are similar. So I really do enjoy watching them in the ocean. Yeah. Um, but I also really enjoy watching octopus. Mm. Um, I find the way that they move and that they disguise themselves really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and I have to say that one of my favorite moments was meeting a wild po- pod of dolphins. So, yeah, it, I, I don't think I can choose one. <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, Where did but, you meet yeah. the wild pod of dolphins? Um, so, yeah, I met I met them in the Marshall Islands, so in the Pacific. Yeah. Um, it was actually, I was there for work. Um, we were supposed to be in a meeting. It was a... <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was doing the right thing. The meeting <laughs> was canceled. You were out playing. You didn't skip your meeting. <laughs> did not skip the meeting. I wasn't allowed to be in the meeting okay. because I, I was representing an NGO, okay. which is actually quite unfortunate. Um, the meeting was an interesting one on fisheries compliance. But okay. in some of the discussions, um, we weren't allowed to be there okay. um, as NGOs because it was closed closed discussion. Gotcha. So we got an extra couple of days off. Um, and so... Obviously, we decided, being in the Pacific, to take the opportunity to get out on the ocean. And a few of us um, rented a boat. And um, some people were watching the dolphins from the boat. Um, and I asked to be dropped off to snorkel. And then sometime later, just out of the blue, this, this small pod of wild dolphins just approached me. And they started circling and swimming and rolling around. It was, it was amazing. It was a few short minutes, mm-hmm. but it was just um, just me and them in the middle of nowhere. It felt really surreal. It was it was magical. So, although <laughs> officially I would have loved to be in that meeting, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I was so glad that 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 just happened on, in the time that 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 short time that we had out on the ocean it was I was really grateful yeah yeah I feel like that was the dolphin's way of telling you you were in the right place at the right time right oh that's a really nice way of thinking about it yes it was <laughs> <laughs> very cool so what does the ocean mean to you yeah so as I said um I'm an islander so growing up the the sea was or the ocean was was a big part of my life um and so i think um apart from being a source of um, relaxation and happiness you know i love being on the beach and by the sea i think um now knowing what i know um and and having learned just how many people are depending on the ocean um for their livelihoods and their sustenance and their food mm-hmm. um and how many communities the ocean touches i think 
to me, it represents one of the sort of fundamental building blocks that we need to protect, um, both for the benefit of the, the environment itself, for its own benefit, but then of the marine ecosystems, but also of those who depend on it. Yeah, absolutely. If you were given a blank check, unlimited funding Ooh. for any project or projects, up to three, what would you use the money for? Oh, up to three. Okay, this is a big blank check. <laughs> it's a blank check? Um, blank yeah. check. Oh, um, okay. So this is, yeah, difficult. I think um, it's not surprising that I would say that I'd use it um, for the work that um, our team is just starting to improve this regional coordination in the fight against IEU fishing. So um, we have big plans then. We're, it's, still a, it's still the beginning, but... Um, I think that the regional approach to to fighting these issues is is really could be quite effective, mm-hmm. um, and getting countries to work together and improving that international co- cooperation is is really very important. And then I think um, because of my background in information technology, and you know, I, I'm a firm believer that data gathering and data management and information exchange is so important. So I think I would dedicate part of that check to um, an initiative that helps authorities to um, build their capacity and the capacity that they need to collect this information to ensure that it's kept accurate and up to date to process it. Um, as is needed, uh, ideally using automation and artificial intelligence techniques, if, if they can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then most importantly, to ensure that whoever needs it to take the management decisions and to take effective action against those who are operating outside the law have access to it. So I know that seems really basic um, and quite simple, but it, it's quite surprising how often we find that these these sort of building blocks, the fundamentals are missing um, or they need improvement and and how, how much of an impact it, that could make. So, yeah, I think. Yeah, I like that. With- I like, you know, going back to the fundamentals, fun- going back to the basics because it's important to have something to build off of. Yeah, and if you think about how many authorities, how many countries, um, how many groups need to be involved in getting that to work, it does need a blank check, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. It's going to take a lot of effort, but I like it. It's a great initiative. Okay, so now we just need to find a check. Now we got to find that blank check. What is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And you just told an amazing one with the dolphins. But this could be yeah. just like an awesome time, you know, out in the field, out in the ocean, or... If you're able to talk about, you know, some of the meetings that you've had, I feel like that's kind of like your field and your territory as well. Yes, I mean, the dolphins is definitely my favorite one, um, but that's also not really representative of my day-to-day job, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I think um, one of my favorite um, field stories was um, the first time I um, observed, a f- uh, well, it wasn't a real, but it was a sort of staged <laughs> um, fisheries inspection mm. um, on a tuna fishing vessel in, in Thailand. It was part of a training program. Okay. Um, and that was really interesting because I hadn't seen, um, you know, that quantity of fish being offloaded before. And mm. I hadn't seen those parts of, of 
such a big vessel before, actually. So I had been on fishing vessels in Malta, but they were smaller. Mm. Um, and and the catch was was much smaller as well. So that was really interesting. Um, we I was there with a group of stakeholders, including my ex-colleagues at the FAO mm. um, and other NGOs and the Thai authorities. And, and the inspectors were explaining to us what they do on a day-to-day basis um, and and you know the sort of questions they ask and the sort of things they look into on the vessel and then afterwards how they sort of um keep the fish um under under wraps so that they know that it hasn't been tampered with after they've inspected it and so on so that was super interesting and then i think from the meeting side of things i really enjoy international meetings mm. um there is a biannual meeting again of the fao which i've attended for several sessions in a row and it's called the committee on fisheries um and it is a really broad meeting where um state representatives meet and they sort of decide on the direction of fisheries um and aquaculture for the next couple of years and so I just really enjoy being there. First of all, we we always have priorities that we're advocating for and, you know, pushing decisions to be taken or even if it's not necessarily a decision-making body, um, pushing for certain messages to be expressed and communicated um, and brought up so that then they can be further discussed in other fora. Um, But also it's so broad because it covers so many different um, topics that you learn a lot when you're there. You get to meet so many different stakeholders um, from different parts of the world. And it's really very enlightening, I think. So these sort of big meetings are my favorite. And unfortunately, we haven't been having many of those in person for a while. Right. But yeah, I can't wait for it to get back to normal. Yeah. Hopefully. Very cool. At the end of each episode, I like to leave the audience with a conservation ask to go forth and bring into the world. And we've chatted a little bit about some things, but what what would you like my audience to take from your episode today? And um, the first thing which we've already spoken about is I'd like the audience to think a little bit more about where their seafood comes from mm-hmm. and to maybe build some confidence in asking questions about that when they when they buy their fish so that um, the the actors in the supply chain know that consumers are interested so it might be just a simple question like um oh do you know where this fish was caught or ideally you would ask how it was caught as well but anyway simple questions just to start off and then making let's say more informed choices if possible you know as i mentioned there are apps you can use um there are there are other tools around so yeah that's the first that's the first ask um, then my second ask is um, to look and think more about um, fisher safety. So fishing is one of the most dangerous occupations and fishers in the world, unfortunately, are not afforded the same standards or, or labor protections that other workers in other sectors can rely on. Even, even workers on merchant ships have much higher safety standards than fishers. Mm. And... Um, you know, we're relying on these people to feed us um, and it's a tough job and it's definitely not as safe as it should be. So just being more aware about that, more aware of that and reading more into it, I think that would be definitely very beneficial. And then the last one, and this is based on my own personal experiences, 
you know, if you're interested in in marine conservation or any conservation, really, um, just think about how your skills and expertise, no matter how far removed they seem from the conservation world, can be put to good use. Um, so there are so many different ways to end up in the conservation world. There are so many different roles that, that we need filled and so many things to do yet. Um, that I think anyone really um, can put their, their skills and their experience to good use to benefit both the people and the planet. So if you're interested in that, sort of don't give up, you know, think in uh, maybe not such a straight line and your, um, your impact could be really helpful to so many people. I love that. All of those were wonderful and uh, that last point is something I really try to bring home for my audience because a lot of people think that they have to actually become a marine biologist to make a difference. And I love having people like you on the show and highlighting your story because you don't. You can have all these different skill sets and still make such a huge, wonderful impact uh, in the ocean and in the marine world. So I think that's really awesome. And I love that that was your part of your conservation ask. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Karen. I, I'm glad that we have um, podcasts such as this one to get that message across. I think it's so important. Oh, thanks. So if the audience wants to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and or your work, where's the best place to do so? Um, I think the best is my email address. Um, so I can put a link to your, uh, yes, Pew. exactly. I can put a link to your Pew uh, webpage. On there yes, there's my Pew web page with my email address. I think that's the best way. Okay. Don't hesitate to get in touch. You know, if there are any questions you have after this conversation, if you'd like to learn more, Pew is really good at putting out um, communications materials. So we have several fact sheets and, and briefs that people can read if they're interested. So yes, please get in touch if, if you'd like to. Very cool. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed our chat. Thanks, Kara. It was really nice to be here. Thank you so much. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. <laughs>